The sins of the seven deadly sins that our lectionary calls us to deal with this morning are the sins of lust and gluttony, sins of the desires. Now, you may think that I'm talking mainly to young people today, not little children, certainly, and not to older people. In some sense, this is true. Young adults have a great capacity for lust and gluttony that older people generally do not have and little children generally do not have. Yet older people do not just lose sin because they've turned older. As we grow in age, we may be physically weaker and less able to sin in the big ways we did when we were young, but that doesn't lessen the sin of our hearts. Jesus teaches us that sin begins in the heart. If we have sinned there, we've broken the commandment. To use a somewhat vulgar image, please note that often the young man who sows his oats widely and never grows up to any amount of spiritual maturity in regards to sexuality tends, when older, to be termed a lecher. He has never mastered this area of his life, and though no woman would want to be with him, He imagines himself being with all of them, and it is written usually all over his face. On the other age scale, remember that little infants know exactly what it is to be hungry and to desire to be fed. Not that it is sin for an infant to have that desire, but that desire can quite easily turn to sin as it does in our lives as adults or as younger children. Just because a tiny child is innocent of big sins doesn't mean that he is innocent of all sin, either. I'm not God, neither are any parents, so it isn't always easy to identify sin versus a tummy ache. And I'm not sure we really need to when they are quite that tiny. But we ought to be aware that those innocent little children grow up to be sinners like you and like me. Often they grow up to be brutes and beasts of men and women. Why? Well, because we are born dead. We are spiritually dead when we come out of the womb, and we need to be quickened, made alive in our spirit. We need new life. As Jesus answered to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, excuse me, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then again, to emphasize what he means, most assuredly, says Jesus, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit works through the waters of baptism to wash us, not as a removal of dirt from the body, says St. Peter, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why that same apostle begins that sentence with the words, baptism now saves you. It is so evidently in the case of infants not something that the infant has done to save himself, but something that God has done in the infant, regenerating, rebirthing them 
infants to new life in Christ Jesus, incorporating them into his body, the church, the only place where new life can be lived. St. Paul, in regards to our salvation, says this to St. Titus, It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, new birth, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, did you catch that last phrase? The hope of eternal life. That has particularly to do with our sin problems and the appetite of sins, or the sins of the desires, that is, lust and gluttony. We've all been regenerated, born again in baptism. We've all been justified by God's grace and become heirs with Christ. All of this, says St. Paul, is according to the hope of eternal life. Hope is the key word. And hope is the theological virtue that we need to inculcate to help fight the sins of the desires. These sins can be fought and resisted and purged with great success by Christians, but when a fall happens, after success for days, weeks, months, years, when a fall happens, utter depression and dejection and discouragement so often follow. You've been on that diet, you've been eating well, you've started to lose weight, And then you have that moment of utter chaos and you just eat yourself into a frenzy. How discouraging. This is one reason why hope helps fight these sins so effectively. We know that we became part of the church through baptism And even if not an infant, we remember that we did nothing in that baptism. God worked in us. Hope is one of the major components of that incorporation into Christ's body, the church. Hope shines brightly at baptisms, and they should be celebrated. And we should look forward to the day after Thanksgiving for bright hope during Talus's baptism. Turn, if you would, to page 791 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, and let's look at our epistle lesson for this morning. In verse 17 of the third chapter of St. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, which is the start of today's epistle, we have the Apostle Paul encouraging the Philippians to follow his example, and then quickly following a warning against the example of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. This is a good description of any of us when we fall prey to the sins of the desires, when we give in to those temptations, we let our desires be our God. We are concerned for all things worldly 
And this leads to our destruction. So particularly with the sin of gluttony, our God becomes our belly. We worship food, as it were, and the filling of our belly and the just insatiable, the appetite of, sin, appetite of sins are insatiable. When one gets in the grip of them, you just want more. You don't, um, well, it's hard to imagine someone who is in the grip of lust, looking at pornography, taking a five-minute look at a pornographic picture, sitting back and contemplating truth, beauty, and goodness. That's not what happens. It's just go to another image. Um, you know, used to be turn the page in Playboy, I suppose. The... The description St. Paul gives us is a good one. Your, your belly in gluttony, your belly becomes your God. At this point, the apostle brings in a contrasting theme. Look to verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now this is a great hope, isn't it? The great hope of being a citizen of heaven. We're not merely citizens of the United States of America. More importantly, by far, as good a thing as it is to be a citizen of this country is to be a citizen of heaven, to be a citizen of God's kingdom, a member of Christ's church. But let us not confuse this hope with the future only. It is a future hope, but it is a present reality as well. It's a present hope. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. And many people who lived there were descendants of Roman soldiers who at the end of their um, soldiering, if they lived that long, they would get a plot of land out in one of the colonies, a good plot of land, so that they could then become farmers and you know, have a living. And so the Roman soldiers settled in Philippi. The church that St. Paul was speaking to was, I'm sure, filled with a number of Roman citizens. The culture of Philippi would have been well saturated with colonial realities. So even those who were not Roman citizens would have understood St. Paul's use of the word citizenship. So if you weren't a citizen of Rome and you lived in Philippi, you were surrounded by a number of former soldiers and descendants of soldiers who were Roman citizens. And so it would be easy to catch Paul's emphasis here. And though we do have a future hope as those baptized into Christ's body and made co-heirs with Christ, we also have a present hope. Remember that the Roman citizens in the colony at Philippi were not all waiting for the day when they could go to Rome and live there. Indeed, Rome had more than enough out-of-work citizens and people and overcrowding to last for centuries. The job of the colony was to bring Rome to the world out there. That was the colony's job. Now allow me to read you a lengthy quote from Bishop Wright in this context. But supposing, he says, things got difficult for the Roman colonists at Philippi. Supposing there was a local rebellion or an attack by the barbarian tribes to the north. How should they cope? Their best hope 
would be that the emperor himself, who after all is called savior, rescuer, would come from Rome to Philippi to change their present somewhat defenseless situation, defeat their enemies, and establish them as firmly and gloriously as Rome itself. The emperor, of course, was the ruler of the whole world, so he had the power to make all this happen under his authority. Thus, says Bishop Wright, is the picture Paul has in mind in verse 20 and 21. The church is at present a colony of heaven, with the responsibility, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, for bringing the life and rule of heaven to bear on earth. And we face this task, this responsibility, with great hope, for we have been freed from sin and born again to new life in Christ and have been gifted with the Spirit of God himself. We are empowered as a body. We are empowered as individual members of that body with the power of the emperor who comes to our colony here in this place to help us to establish a beachhead of the kingdom of God, a city shining on a hill, the glory of God. St. Paul continues at verse 20 to speak of the hope of the resurrection. Allow me to read uh, Bishop Wright's translation. We are citizens of heaven, you see, and we're eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord, King Jesus, who is going to come from thence, from there. Our present body is a shabby old thing, but he's going to transform it so that it's just like his glorious body. And he's going to do this by the power which makes him able to bring everything into line under his authority. Our glorious king will work in us to make us glorious as well. All of this is a present and a future hope. We will one day lose these shabby bodies and be resurrected with a glorious one, not under the curse of sin, not subject to disease and death. This is nothing less than the restoration of paradise, the dream of mankind since the fall of our first parents. Bishop Wright notes that knowing this will enable Christians to stand firm in the Lord. And now we can see more clearly what that means. It doesn't just mean remaining constant in faith, It means giving allegiance to Jesus rather than to Caesar as the true Lord. And this brings us to reference our gospel lesson, doesn't it? The Pharisees have tried through their disciples to entrap Jesus again. They gave him a tough question, but after Jesus uses the coin as an illustration, he says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Yes, we must pay taxes. Yes, we must obey the law of the land. And there are hundreds more examples of this. But ultimately, our loyalty and our allegiance are to God. We give our taxes to Caesar, but we give ourselves holy and we give our children to God. Our little infants will struggle with sin as do their parents, as do we all. But neither those infants nor we should allow ourselves to live a life totally undermined by our appetites, totally determined by our appetites, totally 
taken over by our appetites. That way is death and destruction. Our present bodies are dying. We are awaiting a new body. If we worship our bellies, our bodies, and their desires, we are making a covenant with death itself. And I think if we look around in our culture today, we see that covenant of death everywhere. The cross of Christ stands in the way of that path. Will we allow ourselves to become its enemy? Or will we allow it to turn us back to the path of life? New life in Christ in our baptism and renewed every day in our commitment to our Savior and renewed in our participation in the sacrament of his body and blood. Amen.